obviously I created some of the scramble stuff that I did. Um, but a big part of what I did was aggregating things and then filling in the gaps, you know, like how do things go together? So like, I see this guy do this and I say, Oh, that's interesting. Right. And I see that guy do that. And I say, Oh, that's interesting. Um, and then I think like, well, wait, these, if I just do this thing in the middle, these things go together. Now I have three things that all work together. We can endure anything and adapt and pivot and change. Wrestling gave us that ability. I would say nothing in life has impacted me more than the things wrestling has taught me in terms of self-reflection, resilience. Toughness. Some guys have it, some guys don't. Adversity, 100%. How to pick myself up and be a man after I failed. And everything that has shaped my life and where I'm at today would not be there without the values and basically the, the lessons I've learned through the sport of wrestling. For me, wrestling saved my life because it, it allowed me to focus and channel my energy. We're fortunate if you wrestled because if you wrestled, natural talent helps, but it's, it's 5% of the ingredient. It pales in comparison to heart and technique and effort. It humbled me, taught me humility. Nothing can hit, humble you more than wrestling. I think it's the learning to adapt, right? You learn, you learn how to adapt, you learn how to solve problems. You know, if I look back at my time, I spent wrestling. If it gave me one thing more than anything else, it's mental toughness. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Wrestling Changed My Life podcast presented by Spartan Combat. This is your host, Ryan Warner. It's Monday, November 28th. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. Before we get to this episode, this episode is brought to you by Beat the Street Chicago. Beat the Street Chicago is my favorite nonprofit. They're bringing wrestling back to Chicago's inner city, to the kids who need it most. We want every Chicago youth to be able to say that wrestling changed my life. And Beat the Street Chicago is making it happen, folks. They serve over 2,500 kids, and they're the largest youth wrestling organization in Illinois. And coaches are involved in every aspect of these wrestlers' lives, academics, athletics, and mindset. Giving Tuesday is tomorrow, which is a huge day for nonprofits like Beat the Street Chicago. And right now, Beat the Street Chicago is matching all donations made at 100%. So please help Chicago youth experience the life-changing power of wrestling with a donation to Beat the Street Chicago, who's now accepting crypto. Go to btschicago.org slash donate. That's btschicago.org slash donate. All donations made by November 29th will be matched 100%. Today's episode is with the great Ben Askren, the funky one. Ben just released a new book called Funky. It's a biography on his life, and it is really good, folks. It goes into all his struggles from high school, getting to college, inventing scrambling, and you know his take on it. Really enjoyed the book. For those of you who don't know who Ben Askren is, 2008 Olympian, two-time NCAA champ, two-time Hodge champ, one of the greatest folk-style wrestlers of all time, currently the head coach at Askren Wrestling Academy up in Wisconsin. So enjoy this one. Fan of the week goes to our friend Matt Stetter, hailing from Columbia, PA. Grew up with Aaron Onspach, a former guest. Matt, thanks for reaching out over email. We greatly appreciate your support. Last but not least, folks, this episode is also brought to you by Quant Wrestling, Quant is a statistical app that you can download now. 
that combines stats from wrestling matches, Division One wrestling matches, where Quant tracks and times activities throughout a match. They feed those activities into their cloud analytics platform to give a numbers, a money ball approach to wrestling. So on the Quant app, for example, you can compare two wrestlers and what's going to happen when they wrestle. Right? So you could have compared Austin Gomez and Yanni D. And Quant will tell you what's going to happen when they wrestle. What's the predicted outcome? A really cool app. Someone who's innovating in wrestling and is a sponsor of this podcast. So please support Quant. That's Q-U-A-N-T. Download Quant now in the Apple App Store and Google Play Stores. That's it, folks. Let's get to the episode with Ben Askren. Ben Askren, welcome to the podcast. What's up? I believe I've done this before, but we're doing this again, and it should be a good time. Uh, you seem like you're crushing it. Yeah, things are going well, man. Yeah, we we did one, I think, like two years back, and I'll mention it in the intro, the the number, so people can go back and listen to it. But yeah, Ben, you just came out with a book, and you know it's been a few weeks now. How's the launch going for you? Uh, it's going really well. Did a lot of media, um, and I was I was just saying to you before we launched, it's. Uh, there's not enough wrestling people that put up books, you know, it's obviously the other community is MMA. And I feel the same way about that community, not enough books. I am an avid reader. I love to read. Um, and biographies are my favorite as well. Um, and there's just like, I can only think of about five in the last 20 years that, you know, so you got Rulon, you got Robles. Um, oh my, I thought of a couple more before Henry. the show. Henry, Henry's, I felt like was kind of written for like people who didn't know anything about wrestling. So I, I didn't really love it, you know, because it felt like it was like written in a, in a dumbed down fashion for the non wrestling fan. Um, but yeah, there's there's not a lot. So uh, you hopefully the rest of the community is pumped up. I know I can be kind of uh, because of my presence on FRL, kind of a divisive figure because, um, you know, the fan base, it's funny because, you know, the the Iowa fan base say, oh, I hate them. And then the Oklahoma State fan base say, oh, I don't like them. And the Penn State fan base and, um, it, you know, it's, it's kind of something that, you know, I, I told Krishna before on the show, it's like, you just can't worry about it, right? You just have to say how you feel. And then at some point, people will understand that, like, you're just going to say it how you see it, and they might not love it, but that's how it's coming out. Yeah. Well, the, the good thing about the book, though, is like all of that, uh, all of that aside, it's like you get vulnerable here and talk about some of the struggles. And I love just all of the different turning points. And my, I'm going to go a little bit Jocko style here. Typically, I don't read from a book, but, uh, I love the section of freshman year, you go to Fargo, you yep. go 0-2, and yep. uh, Coach Steiner said this to you. He said, uh, Coach Steiner told me that I had made the big match different, that I gave it additional gravity. And this is like the first time you kind of had your eyes open at performance anxiety. Yes, 100%. So how did you start to, uh, how did you start to adjust that and, and, and kind of correct for it? Um, well, yeah, so, and honestly, I do, so I do Mental Mondays, I've done them, I'm actually gonna do a good one, there's actually a story I forgot to put in the book, I I don't do a lot of seminars anymore, um, but I was in Arizona for the in-laws for Thanksgiving, and I popped into a local high, Liberty High School here, and uh, we do, I, I always do question and answer with the kids, because I think, like, what they can gain from a mind is always more important than the, the technique, uh, and they asked me a question, it brought up a story, I'm gonna save it from my Mental Monday on Facebook, but it made me tell a story, I, I totally forgot I hadn't told forever. Uh, I forgot to go in the book. Um, but so with performance anxiety, it was just the notion of, um, I feel like I'm not too proud. So if someone was were ever to give me advice, I just accept it. And obviously given the results, I knew he was right. Like, 
you know, I wasn't, uh, I mean, even though I wrestled to the top of my performance, I'm not going to place at Fargo that year. I just wasn't that skillful yet. Um, but I wrestled about as bad as, as I could have gotten, you know, it was a really poor performance on my part. So, um, when he, when he brought it up, it was like, oh yeah, that's obvious. Like that was, and then, and then something, you know, I adopted it immediately because I realized and that had a really negative impact on my performance. And if I can fix this, that's going to be huge for me. So I think that's, you know, that's something where kids can realize like, yes, no one's ever perfect. Um, and the quicker you can realize your vulnerabilities and try to fix them, the better off you're going to be. When I love how like this turning point, and you mentioned a couple of big ones, this turning point led you down the track of uh, the track of sports psychology. And then the yeah. other big turning point at Missouri, your freshman year led you down the track of scrambling and, and we'll yeah. definitely get to that. But so like after that Fargo, you said back in the book that back then there weren't a lot of tournaments to wrestle at. So you None. had to sit with that pain for months. Yeah. And like, what, what did you use once you got back up into the season? Was there any like mental trick you used to kind of make sure that you weren't making things too big of a deal? Yeah. Um, it was, uh, okay. Yeah. So I mean, obviously I think we're the same age or really similar. I remember, um, yeah. So, I mean, back then it was Fargo and then you didn't wrestle again until high school season. I remember I did try to do a college open when I was older in high school, but they said like get lost or something. Um, so for the performance anxiety, like I said, it was, he, he told me, you know, what kind of like his strategy, which was, I believe it was talking about fishing or something. And, you know, but the whole idea is just take your mind off the match. Like, don't think about it. Um, and that, that was, that's something I kept all the way through my, wrestling mixed martial arts the entire career because i i can't obsess and i can be um an overthinker and so keeping myself from not doing that is really important um so no it was just uh i knew i knew it like i said i knew it i knew he was right i tried to put it in practice and so you know like i, I tell people i tell kids this is <laughs> even later in my career when i was flying to asia i would fly a friend i would pay for a friend to go to asia with me just so i had someone in the locker room whose job was not to coach me you know what I'm saying? Like, just keep yeah. it light. Hey, you know, we're just gonna keep it light. I'm gonna have someone I can talk to. I generally like my coaches as well, but I wanted another someone who was just, you know, kind of lighten the mood, keep it easy. Because yes, that is something people can do is build things up too much. Then they create that performance anxiety and they perform really poorly. And I remember on another, might have been a T Row and Funky, still one of my favorite podcasts. Man, that was an awesome show. Thanks. You mentioned that before the NCAs one year. One of the like the uh, Missouri donors saw you like disc golfing. I heard that you were disc golfing, and like they got all worked up about it. Like he needs to be focused. He needs to be serious. Does this bring in a bell for you? Uh, well, I think uh, we may be confusing a few stories. Um, so I, well, I have a funny few funny disc golf stories. Um, but the NCAA finals was I was picking my hair on the butt. I just told Keegan O'Toole the story because we were talking. Coach Smith, hey Coach Smith, we love you, but you do. He get he has a little bit of anxiety sometimes. Um, so I was, I was talking to Keegan about this. I said, we were riding the bus over and Missouri had never had a national champion. I had lost him in the final in the first two years and I was picking my hair and it's one of the kind of buses where it's like the open seating. I could see coach Smith over there, like stressing out. And, uh, I said, coach Smith, what are you worried about? I'm gonna whoop this dude's ass, you know, and <laughs> I started dying laughing. And then it was like, ah, we're good now, you know? Um, so that was funny, but now the disc golf, I have two funny disc golf stories. One time at CKLB, uh, that's coming up this weekend. Actually, it's going to be a great tournament. I convinced Raymond Jordan to go disc golfing with me, right? And uh, so I I paid for the cab. This is before, like, I don't have a credit card. That's how long ago this is, you know? There's no Uber is very far from existence. 
So I call a cab. I get the cab to come pick me up. I, they take me to uh, the disc golf course there in town. And we get there and it hits like it 30 bucks or whatever, you know, and I thought it was gonna be like 10. And so I only have $30 in cash on me at that point in time. You know, I think maybe I, I, I think maybe I had more, maybe my parents were coming or something, you know, but literally in my wallet, I only had 30 bucks. Raymond didn't bring his wallet. Right. <laughs> so, like, oh so we put the disc golf game and I'm like, shit, dude, we got to be home in like an hour or whatever. We're going to work out. So it's like, we ran, we ran five miles home. What? <laughs> I didn't tell Coach Smith that one. And then the other one was my senior year. Um, uh, um, the pit duel. So I was, I was expressing Keith, Keith Gavin, the guy I would wrestle in the national finals. Well, I played one round of disc golf and my buddies got me to start playing another one and I got hot. And so I'm like, dude, I could set my record. I could set my personal record. I'm not leaving this round of disc golf. And so, <laughs> right. I, so I literally made weigh-ins by like four minutes or something. You know, I, I was almost late to weigh-ins, but then I went out and decked him that night. So it was great. Wow. But, and I think I, I think I did set I think I set my personal course record uh, also on the on the second round because, uh, you know, I was like, oh, OK, I'll play a few holes and then I got to leave. And then, I, you know, I was like, all of a sudden I got hot. I started burning everything. I'm like, dude, I'm not leaving. <laughs> like, I'm going to I'm going to cut this one close. I am not <laughs> leaving. I'm going to set my personal record today. So, yeah, a bunch of those type of things. Well, it, it reminds me of another awesome story you told near the tail end of the book. You were at a weigh in wrestling Oki State. And you had a guy from Okie State, not Pendleton, and nope. Brandon Mason. Tell us this story for folks who haven't got a chance to see the book yet. Yeah, well, this is another sports psychology uh, story, and so the, the, this one is it's talking about how um, you know if someone has a specific goal in mind you, in, in wrestling, where obviously our opponent, um, and we, we need to sometimes uh, cause them to have an emotional reaction to get them to do something stupid. Uh, in order to make the mistake we need for us to pin him, right? Because I was talking about pinning this guy, and I had not pinned him. I think in three three attempts, maybe three other attempts, I had not pinned him, and I really wanted to pin him because this was a national duel semifinal to us for Oklahoma State. We ended up getting three pins. I pinned Wagner, pin Josh Wagner, pin, and maybe my brother. My brother might have got a pin that duel. We killed him. Um, but so I'm not going to use the language because it's uh, my wife's right over there. She yelled and swearing on the kids. But I said, Brandon, are you going to be a little B today, or are you actually going to wrestle me? He got like so flustered. He's like, I'm going to wrestle you. And then sure enough, like the I get one takedown and he, he steps up. I create him and pin him in like a minute. Uh, and it was a <laughs> I had not been able to pin before. So I got in his head to where he had, it, it elicited an emotional reaction. Um, and so, you know, I, t- I tell Keegan this, uh, he still, has, I don't think he's taken my advice yet because he really wants to pin people. But in, in a dual meet format, the, you know, the other coach says, Hey, you're not, don't get pinned. Right. Like that's your job. Like, I don't really expect you to beat this guy. He's really good. But how about you don't get pinned? And so the guy knows their job is to not get pinned. I mean, you know, another guy who has uh, would be a great example is David Taylor. If you look at David Taylor's pin rate during season versus during NCAAs, it's hilarious. It's way higher than NCAAs because people actually try to wrestle him because it's an individual tournament. You know, and they're not saving their team anything if they if they get pinned. So they actually go wrestle them and they get pinned, you know, whereas during season, you would see people doing all kinds of different stall tactics uh, against David. Um, so, yeah, so you need to create an emotional reaction to get your opponent to do something that they would uh, probably not do if they're calm and, and thinking through things. But it's crazy because a weigh-in is usually like a pretty subdued time. Everyone's kind of keeping it themselves. And yeah. You're in front of the whole Okie State team, and you say, yeah, yeah. Like, hey, are you going to be a little bitch, or are you going to wrestle me? Like, I can't – did did people, like, say anything, or was it kind I of – like- I, I knew – I mean, my team was my team was used to it, because I remember that later that day, 
I was taunting Roger Kish because I was I knew I was going to bump up, uh, and I was asking if he was scared if I was bumping up. I think he still <laughs> me over that. Um, I talk a lot of wrestling in this book, and a lot of these people are like head coaches and stuff, and you know, um, like in in those scenarios, I guess I seem kind of like a mean guy or a bully, but it was more like, hey, I have an I have a, an objective, and I know what is going to help me achieve that objective, so I need to go do it. Like I'm sorry, I'm not friendly, or and that's kind of like when you talk about Keegan or some younger guys. I've I've told them this, like, you know, if you do something here, you can get them to to get mad, and then they do something stupid, and then you pin them, but they're like not at that point where they're like, ah, I don't know, I don't know about doing that. That seems like kind of mean. Yeah. Well, it's more so, like you said, just just trying to get you closer to your goal. And it, it reminds me of when you were back in high school carrying the boom box. And I had never <laughs> heard of this. Even before uh, the book, I had Marcus Levester on the podcast about six oh my weeks God, ago. I, I saw that clip. I saw that clip. Yeah. And I was like, dude, like, and, you know, for folks who don't know, Marcus, you know, he unbelievable. Football, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, But he said that, you know, you would carry this boom box around. And he said he was, you were the takedown king. And I'm like, I didn't realize that. And then reading your book, you, you know, take down, let him up guy. So yep. my question is, is the, is the top game something that evolved from your scrambling opportunities or do you kind of focus specifically on top at a certain point? Um, you know, I was always like decent on top in high school, but yeah, I don't know. I set this, I set this goal. So my, like my freshman year, I would have been relatively good on top. Um, mostly cradles. I didn't do a ton of other things. And then my sophomore year, I said, Hey, I want to set the state takedown record is my goal. Um, and then my junior year, I said, I want to set the national takedown record. I didn't get it. Cause that son of a bitch, Joe Warren, uh, <laughs> he had 60, ma- Joe Warren. I love Joe. I'm going to give him a hard time. Joe Warren, you had 60 matches and he got 487 takedowns. I only had 38 real matches that year and I got 401. So Joe, if I had 60 <laughs> matches, I would have caught you easily. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, and then my senior year, I went back to kind of just like regular wrestling, um, and I, I, you know, I pinned a lot of people, but no, <laughs> it was, um, it was kind of out of necessity. Cause I definitely was not having the type of success that freshman year. And, you know, that was eventually what led to scrambling, but I was also, I was kind of clingy, you know, that's just, and that's my, that's my body style too. It's like, I'm not fast and explosive. I have really good, uh, static strength where I can hold on to things. I can squeeze things for a long period of time. I got a pretty good feel where I'm, you know, clingy on people, um, so I think that I was kind of always within me and I just kind of, I had to focus more. I was forced to focus more on it. Um, but I still think I don't have all my old matches. So I, you know, it'd be fun to go watch them, but I, and I, I tell Keegan this and I tell other athletes, this, that I coach is like um, a lot of like, the, just if the guy, guy on bottom knows my goal is just not to get pinned. It is really hard to pin them, right? So what you need to do is you need to create um, some scrambles, you know, and and then catch them off of a takedown, right? It's almost way more likely to catch them off a takedown than actually take them down and then work through the process of being turned. There has to be a large skill discrepancy. Like if I'm way better than you, I can work through the process of a turn and you won't be able to stop me. But if you're pretty damn good, like that's going to be hard. So I'm going to have to kind of catch you off something, get you really tired. That's another big one. Make you mad. We talked about that already. So there's kind of like a lot of psychological things um, that are, you know, in the process of pinning someone because it is pretty rare when someone is so much better at, you know, at the level we're talking about so much better than someone else that they can just go out there, grab them, turn them over and pin them. Yeah. It's a, and you look at someone like Spencer Lee, who's not necessarily a pinner, but even more impressive when he does it at will like that. Yeah, I mean, he really is the, um, he would probably be the number one, 
I, I've said this before. Uh, his dad got mad at me because I, you know, I said he he gets tired, but then, uh, which is is totally true. It's indisputable. There's evidence. But the compliment I gave Spencer Lee, which I think is it's like one of the biggest compliments ever. There has never been anyone in the history of wrestling. So think about all the people who ever wrestled collegially. There has never been anyone who has the ability to go put six points on the board as frequently as he does. So I mean, if you go the first. Um, say minute of a Spencer Lee match, there's a really high percentage of matches where there's six points on the board. Like more than David Taylor, more than myself, more than anyone. Yeah, more than any I don't I don't think there's anyone else that can compare to him in college wrestling history of like the frequency that it's six zero in the first minute. You know, and obviously six zero or greater, right? Because against mm-hmm. some people it's it's almost over by the first minute. Um so he has such an ability to turn people over. And yeah, that that is that will be one where you know, he can't pin him, right? Which is what we're talking about, pinning. But right. he is so willful at, at, you know, getting the arm back, you know. And then, obviously, he's got a handful of options. The roll for the tilt, the reinforced bar, the bar, right? So he's got a bunch of options from there. Yeah. Now, it's a, it's fascinating. And and that story is, is one of many that just – it's just awesome. It gets you so fired up. And the one I had no idea about, though, your senior year of high school, I did not realize that you – not only were you injured, but you didn't place. Was that something that shook you at all, or did you kind of know going Not in? You really? I mean, I didn't love it. Uh, no, I got hurt. I got hurt at sectionals pretty bad, and I couldn't really walk. And but I'm like, well. I'm not going to get, so it was, a, it was an ankle sprain and I'm like, well, I'm not going to get hurt worse. Right. So, I mean, and like, what am I here for? I'm here to try to win state. So I'm gonna go try. So I wrestled on my knees and I beat the first kid. And then I lost to the second kid. And, uh, and then I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to win state. I lost. I'm out of here. And then went yeah. on to Fargo. Now, you have a story that reminds me a lot of my first big experience. I had never been to an NCAA's Big Tens, but my mom took me to the 04 Olympic trials in Indy when I was in eighth grade. Awesome. And I'll never forget it. Wow. Hey, I'm actually kind of older than you by a bit. I a little we bit. I'm 33. I'm 38. Jeez, yeah. I'm older. So you're like a good a good uh, half. I wrestled in that trials. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about, the match with Agum. And, uh, but before we get to 04... You know, I just remember when I went to the 04 trials, I was the same age as probably when you went to the one in Texas. I just remember vividly, I don't remember the matches as much, but I would sneak into the warm up area and watch Joe Williams warm up. And it was like just the most incredible thing to watch these guys warm up. So I wanted to ask you, when you went to Dallas as a high schooler all by yourself, 2000, was there a match or was there anything in specific that really you remember to this day was like just eye opening to you? Yeah. Um, well, I honestly, I can, I can remember a lot of it. Um, um, but so I, I, there was a USA, I said this, there was a USA wrestling camp. This is so funny now that I'm like older and I run camps, but like, that's what my parents signed me up for. And, and then you, you know, you showed up and you sign in or whatever. And I don't remember what they said the uh, like the chaperone type situation was, but Dude, I had no one chaperone, nothing. Like I was just doing what I wanted. You know, I wasn't a bad kid, so I wasn't like drinking or doing drugs or nothing like that. But it was like, hey, if I wanted to go, you know, I remember one time it was like you got home from a session, it was late, and you know, they said your bed check was 10 o'clock, but no one ever checked on you. Like I said, uh, and like there was a hotel bar area, like open area. And it was like I just went and wandered around because it was like there's all these Olympians down there. I'm like, oh my God, that's Tom Brands, that's John Smith, that's Bobby Douglas, you know, it was like, so it was like, you know, I didn't have the audacity at that age to go talk to these people, but it was just like wandering around and there was all these, you know, really, really elite level wrestlers. It was, it was fascinating. Um, 
So I know, I know one of the people in 2000 that I was watching this because he was from Wisconsin and he was really young was Garrett Lowney. I think he made the team when he was 20 and he, he would win a bronze medal that year in Greco. Um, so I know that was one of the guys that I was watching. Um, the Steiners were wrestling. You know, I mentioned they were my, um, like the, the Wisconsin Wrestling Federation, like state coaches at that point in time. So I know I was watching them. Um, yeah, there was quite a few people I, I was interested in at that point. I remember Colette had a really, um, Good match with, I believe, Bill Zadek. Bill Zadek, um, yeah. Can't, I can't remember who Terry Brands. So Terry Brands made the comeback and made the team. I, I don't remember who he he beat. You know who he beat? He beat the guy. Bowman's. The guy coached in overtime. Terry right? Bowman's? Terry Bowman's. He, he coached overtime, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I remember a lot of those matches were uh, – I, I remember I was really disappointed because uh, one of my favorite wrestlers at the time was Stephen Neal. And he lost to Kerry McCoy after winning the world title in 1999. So uh, I remember being really disappointed that he lost because I think he was one of my favorites at that point in time. Well, it's funny because I was thinking through this morning. I'm like, how many world champs did we have, world or Olympic champs did we have between 2000 and 2008? And I was thinking through the Olympics, obviously Slay won, but it was after the fact. Was there any other champs from that Olympics in 2000 <laughs> besides Slay? You mean who are uh, people who are already world champs at that point in time? Uh, no, who won it there or... Um... Well, who won in 2000? Um, so okay, just we'll... Slay? Oh, man. Now you're quizzing me. Uh, okay, so Terry won a bronze. Sammy Henson got a silver, right? Colette got screwed. Colette got screwed. Slay. 52 would have been McElravey? Or... Bronze. Yeah, and then 67 was Slay. 87 was Gutches, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. And then 213 was like maybe Dominic Black or someone to that effect. Not, or yeah. Melvin? Is it Melvin? Might have been well, Melvin. Yeah. I got a question. Uh, I think I might have got the team. That's that's uh, that was 22 years ago. So, uh, USA. I'm gonna look at USA 2000 Olympic freestyle wrestling team. Okay. We might be we missing got. like 114 if they still had that that year. Uh, that was the last was, year. 119 was the lightest. Okay. All right. Sammy got bronze. Terry got. Goal. I'm oh, sorry. Terry got. I'm oh, sorry. Sammy got silver. Terry got bronze. McElravey got bronze. Slade got gold. 85 would have been Gutches. He did not place. Um, 97. This is. So I'm looking at just the medals. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, Kurt and Easy. Remember that guy? He was a beast. Yeah, and the heavyweight was uh, McCoy. Ty Mazoff. They let him keep his medal. They should take all that dude's Take medals. that away. That's crazy. He tested positive so many times. He got a. He got a. He was kind of ageless because he got a silver in 2000. Jeez. And Yoel, like I, he's still, he's still relevant. That's crazy. Right. Yeah. Was the Yoel Satiev match, was that a dive you think? Or was that a straight up win? Hard to say. Hard, uh, to, say. hard to say with the Cubans. I have witnessed firsthand um, a Cuban discussing his payment for throwing a match. Um, yeah. So, um, hmm. Yeah, I think there's probably a good chance that there was uh, some money. They're, they're, they're world championships from, I think, Adam and, and Yoel wrestled the 1999 World Championships, I believe. Or was it 2001? I don't remember. One of the years, and it's a really cool match. And uh, I don't remember. I think it's online somewhere, actually. Yeah, those are, I'll have to, I, I don't know that one. I just remember watching that finals, that inside trip. I'm like, man, it just looked a little. I mean, nothing, not taken away from the great Adam Satia. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So you go to the trials, you get this. First-hand experience, and I love how you call it these ignition ignition events. Yeah. Like it's almost yeah. more important than going to like the youth nationals is to see oh, a big it's event. Way more important, in my, my opinion. 
especially when uh you know my pet peeve ryan uh because i coach youth wrestling is at, at the youth level there's not really actually a national tournament i mean there's national level tournaments so like maybe, probably tulsa which i don't really like is probably the best usa wrestling has a folk style and freestyle greco nationals um but the amount of the best kids that show up is not even semi close to say, you know, a super 32 UWW cadets, Fargo, these type of events, you know, whereas if, if kids win those events, you're like they're national champions. So I, I can't stand it. And, you know, we have an all American wall. We don't include anything sub high school because it's just not right because they're not really national tournaments. So my pet peeve is all these stupid tournaments that just throw nationals on the end of it. It's just like, dude, why do you need to say nationals? Mm -hmm. Like it's, Yes, I understand the fact that you're allowing anyone to wrestle from any state. And so I guess, therefore, it makes it a national tournament. But it, it's kind of preposterous in the notion that now these you know parents say, oh, my kid's a national champ or my kid's an All-American or whatever. It's it's uh, that one is uh, infuriating to me. But yeah, so I mean, like we are doing um, we do an ignition trip every year for AWA. Last year we went to Missouri, did a duel with Virginia Tech in northern Iowa. That was one for us. And then um, this year. Unfortunately, there was no like we were looking for a good duel before uh, New Year's and not on Thanksgiving weekend because Iowa Penn actually probably would have been fun um, in, in the local vicinity of Wisconsin. So, you know, Minnesota, Iowa, northern Iowa. And there was not really any like great duels before New Year's. So we're going to the World Cup and that's in two weeks. Oh, in wow. I was going to say Iowa, Iowa State this Sunday is going to be wild. Yeah, uh, we already have what is going on that day. There was something going on that we uh, I can't recall what it is right now that we couldn't do that one. But yes, that's that, that that should be a really awesome duel. So you brought up World Cup and this is something yeah. I was going to ask you about. 2008 World Cup. Who's on that team with you over in uh over in Dagestan? Oh man. Um so Andy Rovat, it was Andy Rovat, it was Kurt Backus, Steve Mako. Who was below me? Was Schwab or Freyer or Was Henry there? I don't think Henry was there. Maybe Nick Simmons or Hazelwinkle. I don't think Henry was there. And, and then I, I believe Zadok was 61 or 60 at that time. I believe Zadok was 60. Oh man. Now you got me. Yeah. You're That's quizzing. a Why well, just, I've never, uh, I'm working on a project around that time and I totally forgot about the 08 world cup. And the fact that it was in Russia is, you know, that's when you're really going to get their best lineup and you scored off against Sarkoosh. Yeah, and he actually obviously wasn't the guy that year because uh, Satya would make a comeback. So I, I did decent. I was I was three and one, um, and my only loss was to Sargush, and obviously that was the the three period system, you know. So I think both periods I was losing really close at the end, and then it's like, well, you got to go for something because you're losing. So you know, what's the point? Um, type thing. Uh, yeah. So unfortunately, also he pulled my hair out. I talk about it in the book. He was about the dirtiest of dirty wrestlers ever. Uh, <laughs> Really was. I mean, you can talk to anyone in in my era there, and they will uh, they will repeat that fact. Even if you watch him wrestle JB at the 2011 quarters, oh, like so dirty, filthy match, filthy. Yeah. Well, let's see. So yeah, uh, dang, I can't find our roster. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, they have they have the results, but I cannot find something about uh, what the roster was. What was like the you know when you yeah. went over there? Yeah, no problem. Yeah. I was saying, when you go over to something like that, they're like, what was your, what was your kind of your first impressions of going to, uh, to Russia and, and seeing wrestling at that level? Um, I was pumped. 
I wanted, I wanted to compete with the best guys and, you know, I got a chance to compete. Uh, so I went to that tournament and then I went the next week, I went to Kiev. I don't recall what it, the tournament was. Um, yeah, no, I was excited. I mean, honestly, like part of me wishes uh, I got to live a dual life and part of me got to keep wrestling and, you know, go to all these tournaments and stuff like that. Um, but obviously I chose to make the decision to fight after the 2008 Olympics. But no, I was pumped. It was awesome. Um, I think I went eight and two over the two tournaments. And I talk about I talk about the match in Kiev. I totally got cheated. It was such shenanigans. So I got, you know, I got to get a feel for all the things that, um, you know, people had been talking about uh you know you hear all these stories right because at that at that point in time 2008 it's not like you can go watch video of Colette or mccoy getting screwed you know you hear these stories and then you're like okay and then you get there and it actually happens you're like oh got it right well and when you think about you know the the you know russia is always one of the top countries if not the top you're super into youth development what do you think they're doing unique or what do you think is a little bit different about how they're approaching it for their youth and like high school age kids? Oh, hold on. I think I found the team for you. Oh, this is the Olympic team. Damn it all. Um, I do, you know, I don't know. I, I, I always want to spend some time there and I never really got to spend some time there. Um, <clears throat> so I can't say for certain. I think, you know, I think one of the things America's figuring out is they are figuring out the sparring thing, which is important wrestling through positions and not just, um, you know, super all a bunch of super basic type positions. Um, so I think that that is really important. Um, but they also just have such a it's such in their culture, you know, it's like, why is wrestling good in Pennsylvania? Well, because wrestling is good in Pennsylvania, it's part of their culture, and a lot of the people really enjoy it. Um, and it's been that way for how many years now, you know, 30, 40, 50. I don't know, I, I, I don't know how far it goes back, it goes back a really long time. Um, so I'd say something like that, obviously. Um, and I, I hope you don't discount this, Ryan, because some people do. Ryan, they're all cheating on PEDs, all of them, right? And that's like, that should not be neglected when we think about the success they're having. Like, are they great wrestlers? Absolutely, freaking not, not taking that away, right? Um, but what effect is all the performance enhancers that they're taking have? I don't know. I don't take them. So I don't know. I don't know how much better I would be if I, if I took PEDs. I'm not certain, Right. Um, but the fact of the matter is, when you look at the McLaren report, you look at a guy like Ty Mazoff, who's got bumped up. I actually got bumped up to sixth at the Olympics because two guys above me failed. Or maybe fifth. It was fifth. I think I bumped up to fifth because I was took set, you know, seventh because they whatever they do is stupid. Um, and two guys failed, so I got bumped up to fifth. Like, so mm-hmm. you know, like all of them are cheating. And I, I really just I think sometimes we, we neglect that notion, but I think it shouldn't be written off as minor. So obviously they're really good wrestlers. And I think, I think a lot of sparring and then obviously like I said, gets in their culture. Um, but I think the PEDs are there also. And so everyone should acknowledge. Yeah. We've all watched uh, Icarus. If you haven't, it's insane. Oh, it's such a good movie. If you haven't watched it, you gotta watch it. And then have you watched the one he did the dissident on Jamar Kasoji? Uh, no, but I, I know about Kasoji. So, so um, the same director who did Icarus, Brian Fogel, he did, Fogel. Yeah, a documentary called The Dissident, which is about the the murder of Jamar Kasoji in the embassy. Um, really insane documentary. Okay, I need to go watch that because yeah, that, for his was good, and that, that story is is something that not a lot of people know. It's interesting. So, do you, to that end, if you know, if you think that the cheating is still going on there, and why wouldn't it be if they've been doing it for so long? Sure. Yeah. Are we like the only country that doesn't dope, or are there plenty of U.S. wrestlers that are doping? Uh, I have never seen it firsthand, but I, I wouldn't be all that shocked. I mean, one, one of the things I think about why I think about why I think the answer might be we are not that much. Um, 
And I know you're right. I, like I said, I never saw it around me uh, or anyone in my immediate circle. Um, but one of the reasons I think we're actually maybe not is when you look at USADA, they've started testing UFC fighters, right? And so say, I think they started in 2016 or 15, somewhere like that. So if you started going to look, okay, how many people tested positive um, that were fighting the UFC at that point in time? It was a lot. I mean, they were, they were doing like I want to say it was like 25 to 30 positive tests per year. So you think, okay, cool. Well, so that means, you know, I'm sure some people are getting away with it, right? But there's still this many that are getting caught. And then you look at wrestling and there's almost zero that are getting caught, right? And so it's like, okay, well, if, if people were actually using it like they were using the UFC, because the UFC, there's, there's a lot more money involved. Generally, uh, people have access as well, Um you think they would know how to get around the test better than the wrestlers who, who don't have access to the, the amount of funding that they do. Um, but you see like a couple positive weed tests and like, that's it. Like you can go re look through the USADA database publishes all the positive tests and in wrestling it's, it's, if you take weed out, there's not a lot. It's right. a really small number. Well, even NCA though, it's like never, I've never seen the NCA come out with a report that someone tested positive, which to me is just I insane. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if the NCAA actually tests. I know you saw the test, though. <laughs> All right, All right, so I'm going to USADA's website. Sanctions. Uh, oh, you can you can do it by sport. So let's see. Uh, we're gonna put we're gonna put some shame on some people. When was this? Uh, oh wait. Oh, here we go. Wrestling. Okay, Rayvon Perk. Uh, okay, Rayvon Perkins. Oliver, which we know that one was shenanigans. Oh, John Lorenz. So that's actually a steroid right there. But then Stephanie Lee, marijuana, Stephanie Lee, marijuana. Oh, you had Dayton Fix and Victoria Francis, both at Osterine, which is maybe, uh, I don't know who Michael Dun Duncombe is. He tested positive shows, but I've never heard of him. Yeah, there's another person who refused to uh, give their sample. Yeah, there's just, it's really few and far between. Mm -hmm. They're testing positive. Yeah. Well, it's a uh, it's something definitely to keep an eye on, and and as we as, before we sign off on Russia, let me get your thoughts on this. Okay, let's do, do it. Do you think Russia should be allowed in the worlds? Yes, hundred percent, hundred percent. What the heck, uh, Dad? This is weird. If you go through this, there's a whole bunch where it says name removed. I did not know you could remove your name on this. That's interesting. Well, there were some you. guys this year who got some fault uh, faulty tests because of something like oh. eat at the Pan Ams. I don't know if that. Audits, maybe they pulled their names off it or something. Um, uh, yeah, so I think Russia, I mean, so this is, I told, I told Flo they should just do the damn card because if you look at, um, UFC still has plenty of Russian fighters. I was actually, I, one of the times I called them was I went to Bellator two weeks ago in Chicago, and the last three fighters on the card were Russians. Mm -hmm. and the first fighter on the main card was a Ukrainian. It's like, uh, you know, these guys are not doing the war and, you know, and I, I don't know if I'll be called unpatriotic for this, but this is, this is how it feels like, um, who is right. There's been a lot of armed conflicts in the last say 30, 30 to 40 years. Who is the person who says, oh, the armed conflict is just and acceptable. And we should be able to do that. Like, are we going to have a judge that says that every single time and say, oh no, in, in now in, in Olympic athletics, this person cannot compete because they, they have an armed conflict that is not approved. Like is, is the, is the U S is the IOC approving armed conflicts now? Like, you know, I, I just feel like, right. Where do you, yeah. Where do you draw the line? Yeah, no, absolutely. 
So as you as you go through your career, you know, folk style career is very well known. You had a very short runway to get ready for 08. How did you make the decision to go 163? Uh, well, really, it was actually uh, the guy you mentioned earlier, Joe Williams. Um, I had ride, and I mentioned I talked about this book. I beat him a practice match, and it was like uh, I knew I was I was always wrestling up in the summers. Like I'm not big. I'm kind of even now. I'm kind of like I like to eat. I still I work out almost every day, but I do like to eat, and so I'm probably like 195. Right. And me being like lean is probably like somewhere between 180 and 185 is really lean for me. Um, and then college seasons during the seasons, I would I would generally hover a little bit below that, you know, somewhere like 177, 178. You know, I, I was really disciplined on my weight because it can really negatively affect you. Um, so I was wrestling up every summer because I knew it would make a serious commitment to to go down and at that point in in American wrestling, no one was thinking because like today there's college wrestlers who really actively compete at the international level. During that period, there, there really wasn't. You know, Henry skipped college and he was college age, but I was the second youngest guy on the Olympic team that year um, because people didn't really actively compete that much during their college career. So I would always bump up because my main focus was my college career. I wanted to, I wanted my college career to be great. I wasn't willing to kind of sacrifice my college career for my international career. Cause if I would have had to make 163 and I did, I would have to get way smaller. Right. So I had to really, really shrink myself. Um, and so that was what I did. Cause I knew, I knew I was undersized. I mean, so actually, and, and mogul mogul wall, he was kicking my butt. Uh, he was the next weight class up. He beat me a couple of times and he was kind of kicking my butt in the practice room um, above that. And he was just, he was, he, he was sucking a lot of weight to make, that weight class because he couldn't beat Cormier up at the next weight class. Mm -hmm. So he was just so much bigger than me. Um, I did actually have, I had a win and a loss against Andy Rovet, who would make the team, the Olympic, Olympic team at uh, 84. So um, was that a big yeah. upset for King Mo not to make it? That was a pretty big upset. Yeah. At that point in time. Um, yeah. So I think, I think 60, 74 day before is pretty small for me. It was, it was doable, but hard, you know, somewhere like 167 to 170 probably would have been, better for me um and then you know that was you know we talked about the factors why i didn't continue wrestling obviously financials were one financials and mixed martial arts are way better um but you know another one was like dude like i had to be on a diet pretty much year round to make that weight like it was really really hard for me to make 163 um so that was you know that was not ideal at all and then i yeah i wish they would have the current weight classes because the system they have now with the 10 weight classes is great. I would have wrestled 79 kilograms all through college. It would have been perfect because that's the exact same as my college wrestling weight class. Um, I might have made some teams at that point in time. You know, because if you split the if you split the talent levels, you know, like I wasn't far off. I was um I think I was fourth and fifth at, at 84 kilograms. Um, so you know, I wasn't super far away from making teams. Yeah, no, and it's uh, 2000s when they started cutting back on those weight classes, and it just kind of yeah. got progressively worse. Yeah. Um, but for you to make that weight, like when you were doing your final push, were you within like 10 or you couldn't even get that close before you did your uh, final push? About 10, ben, about 10 to 12 is what I would cut Ooh. in the last. Um, yeah. Yeah, but so yeah, key, key, and that was what I talk about. Um, My first time down, which would have been the 2007 U.S. Open, um, you know, like I said, I didn't want to sacrifice my college career. So I hadn't real. I maybe started shrinking a little bit, but not that much. So, you know, that the opens a month after the NCAs. And so, um, 
you know, I was in that process of getting small and the weight cut, that weight cut was really hard on me. And I really, I fell off a cliff the next day. And that's why, you know, I see someone like Sammy Sasso fall off a cliff at the all-star. And I'm like, I know what that feels like. Like I had great cardio. My cardio was outstanding. But when you cut weight like that and the next day it was like, I even wrestled good for two matches. And then the third match, I felt like, Oh my God, I can't move. This is terrible. Like, I, it hits you. And I'm just like, yeah, I was like, yeah, I felt like my whole body was in mud. So all summer, you just must have been leaning out like literally seven days a week. Yeah, um, pretty much. All and, you know, I am now, you know, you hear Gilman talk about not staying, staying too light. Um, but I, you know, I didn't have that. Um, I, I didn't have an expert in nutrition helping me with it. So it was like, I, like I said, probably my probably nice lean weight is probably 180 to 185. Um, and, you know, college seasons, I was probably like one, 177, 178, but to really, to make that, I had to walk. I had to be probably walking out of practice at 170, which means I was probably like 172 to 173. And just the extra five pounds was really hard for me. Yeah. Well, and guys, we're going to, I want to get to some of the, the stuff you mentioned at the end around sports psych, but there's so much awesome stories about you, you know, hitting rock bottom in college, finding scrambling, working with Ironman and the battles with Pendleton. And so I really encourage folks to get the book. It's called Funky. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, and, and if you need more, the flow doc that they did on you was awesome. I loved hearing kind of inside your mind on how you were thinking three, four, five moves ahead. Um, one of the questions I had that I couldn't wait to ask you is you were really an innovator in scrambling. Yeah. How much do you think is still left on the table that people have not even scratched the surface on? Like, do you think 5% of Division Question. I All Americans are? are at like a, what you would say a proficient level or not even close? Oh, no, uh, no. Oh, okay. That's not the question. Um, no, I think a lot of, I think a lot of people are, are proficient. Um, there's obviously still people who excel more than others. Um, definitely more than 5%. It, you know, scrambling has evolved a lot since that era. Mm -hmm. And, and what I thought you meant actually, the question I thought you were going to ask is like, what evolutions are we, are we still going to see? Um, like say like the wind Dixie, you know, when mm -hmm. Nolf did the wind Dixie, I'm like, golly, why didn't I think of that? Like, that's so easy. You know, when I do it now, it's like, oh, this is so dumb. Like, how did I, you know, how did I, how did I miss that? You know? And I think that's how like it feels some moves. It feels like that. Um, you know, I think, I think what, if you look at kind of the progression of what's happened, so obviously you need to be, you do need to be proficient in scrambling, but a lot of the, a lot of the stuff that's really became popular in the last handful of years is like, how do I not, scramble right so like a down block go behind is way different than it was 10 15 years ago you know where you you know they shoot and you hustle the corner quick and you get behind without really a scramble forced um or you know one of the things that's become really popular is shooting off people's fakes now right they fake and booby blast and and that really you can take them down without an ensuing scramble most of the time you know so um those type of things <laughs> um have been getting really popular because i think people realize Okay, uh, and this is this is a little bit it's a little bit good thing, a little bit false thing, but how can I score as easy as possible? And the easiest way would be to attack you without you being able to come back and scramble with me. Um, but then then the notion the notion of I can do this to everyone and I'll never be in a scramble. That's faulty thinking. Like you know, someone will be able to create that with you, and you do have to have at least a, a base level of proficiency uh, with those scrambles. Got it. And if you think back to when you were at your folk style prime, the depth you knew about scrambling, I'm sure it's much more yeah. now as you've coached it. Um, yes. Are there people that have, that you've seen, you don't have to mention them, but are there people that have come close to that, um, that you've seen that really impressed you with some new scrambling innovations? Um, 
Yeah, of course. I mean, I, th- I think obviously the most impressive I just brought him up was Jason Nolf. I think he was really an innovator. Um, and there's been a few other guys, you know, uh, David Taylor, Nickel did a lot of really interesting things. Yanni does as well. Keegan now is kind of pushing the envelope. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, no, I because th- I think, yeah, I think this stuff is becoming commonplace. And then the difference that these guys have today, which I didn't have at all, or, you know, my era is is access to film. You know, you can watch everything now. So you can go watch the best guys. And I tell people, um, you know, obviously I created some of the scramble stuff that I did. Um, but a big part of what I did was aggregating things and then filling in the gaps. You know, like how do things go together? So like I see this guy do this and I say, oh, that's interesting. Right. And I see that guy do that. And I say, oh, that's interesting. Um, And then I think like, well, wait, these if I just do this thing in the middle, these things go together. Now I have three things that all work together, you know, as as like a unit, um, stuff like that. So I I think I did a lot of that. um, And that was really important because then it wasn't just like, you know, one move here and one move there. It was like a system. It was like a, a thing that functioned together to be effective. And I love how you emphasize in the book that it wasn't about your style. It was about just finding a way to win and win consistently. Yes. yes. 100%. No, that's one of the most important things for me in my life. I used to talk about it all the time, but uh, is, man, stop, stop having, stop being too proud. Stop having biases. Stop liking things. Like if we just go wrestle, what, what is the right tool for the job? Yeah, that's it. What's the right tool for the job? Don't don't have any personal feelings towards it. Just figure out what the right tool is and use it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Page one seventy. And this. Oh. Let's go, baby. All right. This is this is amazing. Some kids think if I lose this wrestling tournament, people will think less of me. It's a harmful way to think because the end result of that mindset is performance anxiety. And you go on uh, to to go a lot on this topic. This is just something that's so near and dear to me and, and a lot of people I, I know and a lot of parents who listen to this podcast, they reach out to me kind of saying the same thing. So yes. if I lose this wrestling tournament, people will think less of me. Where do you think that comes from and how are you helping your guys around it? Uh, so I, yeah. Uh, so this is it is absolutely the most asked question on Mental Monday. Um, you know, they do on my Facebook page. Um, Fantastic, by the way. Thank you. So, yeah. um, well, I think the the one way we try to focus on it, and it's not foolproof, right, is effort. We praise effort. That's all we want. If you give us great effort, we're going to help you figure it out over the course of time. Maybe not tomorrow, but, you know, it, it, we're going to progress in the right direction. So uh, emphasizing effort is, is huge. Um, <laughs> I think whether parents like to, or sorry, whether they mean to or not mean to, and most, I would say I would lean towards most of them don't mean to. Sometimes they create this in kids because even like uh, I'll tell a parent, right? Um, hey, man, like I don't want you to get excited or emotional while your kid's wrestling, you know? And what the, you know, one of them would be like, the main thing we need to focus on is them keeping their emotional control of what's going on, you know? And then the match is close and the parents are like, ah, and they're yelling crazy, you know? And you'll, and then I literally say, like, hey, like you can't handle this. You can't handle this. You're a detriment to your child right now. Just go sit in the stands. Let me do my job. You, you pay me to coach your kid. Let me coach your kid, you know? Wow. And so parents parents have a hard time of letting go of the results and praising effort. They really do. It's so, because it's so easy, right? It's so, it's so easy to say, oh, you won great job or you lost terrible job. It's simple. It's a scoreboard tells us what we should say every time, right? Versus like how much effort, because effort is, I don't want to say it's arbitrary, 
But it, once you get a trained eye, you can tell when a kid is giving really great effort and when they stay focused and, you know, and when they keep fighting versus when they don't. And so um, I can say to a kid, that wasn't your best effort. That was crap. You gave up in the third period. And they have a hard time arguing with me because it's like, no, I saw it. I, I know I'm right on this one. You're going to listen or not, you know, whereas mm-hmm. if a parent says that to him, that's going to be like World War Three. You know what I'm saying? Like for, for real though. Yeah. Yeah. So a parent said to a kid, that's like World War Three. And so, um, you know, it's uh, it's way easier for a parent to praise results. You know, oh, great job. You won regardless of what, you know, even if the kid was winning big and then they started, you know, gassing and they gave up and they still won because they were ahead by enough. Like, no, that's not a good performance. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of, I think, a big portion of it. And then I think that the other thing, you know, I talk about ego and outcome is like uh knowing you know the kid knowing or feeling as if they're valued and they're loved um regardless of what the outcome is uh i think that that's a big one and if you're if you're praising the right things i think they're going to feel good about that but if not then they're going to feel threatened and because of that do you let parents in the room at awa we do yes we do um you know i think i i actually i think our parents do a great job i really um I, i don't have an issue with barely any any of them at all um, but I, I think it is because we we approach it head on. If we see something we don't like, we go talk to them immediately because we know um, they're a big part of the the puzzle for the kid, right? If the kid's going to have success, um, most of the time the parent's going to have to be a beneficial for them, not not a, more of a negative. Um, so we go approach the parents. We In our parents' meeting at the beginning of every youth season, I, I give out um, – I, I, I quote sections from a certain book, three certain books I really like. And then I really recommend the parents read them. And I think a lot of them do go read these books. Um, yeah. So I think, I think it's really important for the parents to be bought in and, and tied in because the kids are going to need the parents to be successful. What are the books? Uh, the art of learning mindset and talent code. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Three really good books. If you haven't read those, I would recommend you read them. I've not read the first one. The other two I have read. Carol Dweck. So yeah. yeah, the Art of Learning has a great part about the um about performance anxiety. Um, so it's a guy named Josh Waitskin, and he was actually the subject of the Searching for Bobby Fisher movie. He was yeah. the guy with a ton of success doing uh chess. And you know, there's a couple sections. I think it's the section that I put in the pamphlet is um, you know, he said like I lost a, I don't remember if it was a national championship or so he, he lost a really big match. Right. And he, I think he was, 11, I want to say 11 or 12, somewhere in there, you know? And he said, you know, at these tournaments, he would see a lot of parents just freaking go after their kids for losing. Right. Because, um, you know, obviously the parent probably has too much ego because they feel like it's a reflection on themselves if the kid loses, which that, that happens in wrestling too, unfortunately. That, you know, the, especially the Millie Macho dads think if their kid looks like a wimp, that's it's a reflection on them. And that, <laughs> I'm for real. It's no joke. Yeah. That came up poorly. Um, but uh, so he said, you know, I lost this big match. And my dad knew how much it mattered to me. He he knew he didn't have to say anything. And he just took us on a fishing vacation or something to get away from it, you know? And so it was like, oh, like, you know, that that's kind of impactful for a parent to hear. Because I always say this, if kids are going to be great, it's got to be the kid driving it. It can't be me. It can't be the parent. It can't be anyone. It's got to be the kid. The kid's got to say, this is what I want to do. You know, and when a kid says, this is what I want to do when they lose, you don't got to yell at them. You probably got to give them a hug most of the time. Reminds me of a story Pat Smith told me, uh, and we documented this in the Smiths, but his first year at Fargo, he got thumped and his dad comes up to him after like crying for 25 minutes. And he's like, let's go get some ice cream. Yeah. That's yeah. it. I mean, it, you know, and 
he 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 had that internal self drive to do it himself. Yeah. And uh, what you just said kind of hits on one of my favorite quotes from your book that a lot of what your success is chalked up to is blue collar progression with in, with eternal beginner mindset. Like just yeah. another freaking awesome thing to think about. Last question I want to ask you, Ben. You mentioned yeah. that you have 25 base wrestling skills. You don't go, no. into, <laughs> don't go into them in the book, which I wish you would have just had an appendix with like- uh, Oh, it's not, it's, it's not technical skills though. So what is, right, so tell so us this was this was an argument I made with, I had an argument with Christian Piles on talent and my wife's in the other room. So I can't, I can't speak too loud because she's going to come here. She makes her so mad. So she's going to come here and try to yell at me or something. But I say talent doesn't exist. But so one of the arguments I make in wrestling is, okay, what types of, what types of skills um, just naturally kids start wrestling the first day when they're seven years old, what types of skills could they have that would help them be good at wrestling? Okay. So you have things like speed, strength, balance, flexibility, right? Those, these ones are obvious, you know? Um, But then you have like the mental skills of like intelligence, intelligence obviously helps persistence, discipline, you know? And so you start going through this like litany of things that could help you be a good wrestler. And so um, you know, even if you even if you were to score someone like Jordan Burroughs, who's you know one of the greatest of all time, um, he's probably not gonna score at the top of every category, right? Because there's some things that are in opposition, like for example, someone who's got great cardio, which should help you for wrestling, generally does not have the best speed, you know. And actually, so Burroughs, I think uh, I think people overrate his speed, and I think I think he he's um in a really good range where he's like above average speed. Um, where it's negligent to his cardio, right? He, he can still go hard for six minutes, you know? And then obviously part of that is toughness as well, right? There's another category in, in that. So, um, you know, so no one is going to score at the top of those categories. So then it's like, okay, well, if I had to say, I'm going to, I want to make an NCAA division one champion wrestler. Is, is there an aggregate number I got to score in all those categories? Is there an average I got to hit? If I have like really, really elite of, cardio can i be low on speed or strength maybe you know so it's and, and then so then but then i go back to then i go back to um uh you know if we if we're really talking talent it's from the womb when they come out of the, the mother um and so it's like now yeah, i bring my kids up it's like my kids have been around wrestling the whole time we roughhouse a lot we love to just kind of like wrestle and play and battle and you know um so they've been doing that forever. So by the time Alex ever did her first wrestling class at, at age five, um, you know, she had been used to that rough housing that, and that battling and that playing. And, you know, so then you see, you know, I run wrestling academy. So I see some kids, some kids who come in and they're nine years old and they've literally never done a sport. You know, I mean, I, I literally have this where my, the parent says, Hey, you know, I have done a bad job. I haven't got my kid involved in sport and I want them to get involved with something or maybe they tried a team sport and they're like, oh, the kid hated a team sport, right? So, oh, maybe they do wrestling and they're nine years old and they're really soft and gushy. And so it's not like, okay, well, if we're talking about talent, it's not where they are right now because they've sat on the couch for nine years and done nothing. It's like, well, what, what, what could nine years is a long time? Like, I know they're only nine years old and that seems really young, but what could that kid have been doing if his family was? you know, health conscious, outside exercising, climbing on the monkey bars. Like I feel like, I, I mean, I might trick my kids. I build a monkey bars in my basement. And they think it's awesome. But I know also like, Hey, they're getting a workout. They're getting stronger. That's going to be good for them, you know? And they think it's just fun, but it's like, well, this is going to be beneficial to them. Even, even if they don't realize it's going to be beneficial to them, you know? So it's like, 
yeah. So I don't want to get in that discussion because my wife's going to come try to fight me. Um, <laughs> which a lot of people do. I said Michael Malice tried to fight me over that comment also, but that's how I think about it for wrestling. It's interesting because I know you, you have fun, uh, poking some jabs at the, at the Iowa folks. And uh, literally two weeks ago though, Terry Brands told me he's, the, he said that a uh, hard work is a talent, which maybe might be something that you might align with. Like, do you agree with that? Or do you think talent in general is just a weird word that doesn't have any meaning? Um, I, I think people are confused about what the meaning of it is. For me, it would be the innate ability to have success at something. Um, and I just don't think people come out of the womb like that. I think when you think when when post facto you give credit for certain things, you're like, oh, that kid was really good because he was really strong, right? It's like, well, how did he, you know? Or me, for me, I'll just say for me, people said, oh, I had a great feel for wrestling. Like, did I have that when I came out of my mom? Like, I don't think I did. Like, I think it was because I freaking, I was on the map all the freaking time. I think that probably has a really good reason. I had such a good feel for wrestling, right? So you post facto you're trying to attribute my success to something you wouldn't have seen ahead of the fact. Mm-hmm. Well, into that end, let's, let's wind down with this. Which of the 25 skills do you think are most neglected? Or is there one that you think really just is totally overlooked? Um, well, I, I mean, the obvious, the obvious uh, athleticism parts um, of, uh, you know, like speed and strength. Those are, those are the, the ones that are obvious that everyone sees. Um, and it's just, it's easy to point out and say, oh my God, look how fast that kid is. He's going to be good, you know? Um, and whereas something like balance would be obviously, and again, listen, I don't think people come out of the womb with this. It's something that's developed and, you know, through early childhood or, or whatever through wrestling, you know? And so you would say, oh, if their, their balance is great, it's probably something they've developed, not something that was innate. And, but it's also harder to see than strength or speed. Um, but I would say generally the mental ones, because the mental ones are, they are absolutely hard to work on, right? It's way easier to say, hey, go lift these weights and get stronger. That's mm-hmm. simple, right? Or, hey, go do these single legs and get better at a single leg. But to, um, you know, pick up on some of the mental characteristics, uh, you know, like a, a persistence, right? Um, or, a pro- you know, a big, you know, I, you know, I'll say, I'll tell you the one, uh, the problem solving, right? The ability to problem solve within a match is something very, very few people are elite at, but it's so important. And then that, that right, that carries over to life because say you're having a business meeting with someone, right? And so essentially you're getting, try, trying to get someone to go with your company or buy, buy your product, right? And you start with a, a goal, a game plan. And in the middle of the meeting, you know, some people won't realize it, but the meeting's going terrible. And the person is not, they're not seeing what you're seeing. And so you have to literally problem solve here. Okay, this problem person's not seeing what I'm seeing, right? Or I got taken on a whole bunch. How do I, within this match or this meeting, how do I flip the script and problem solve in such a manner? What tools do I have that can solve this problem that I'm doing right now? Like, I think that that's a really neglected one. And you say a lot, you hate bad strategy. Like that just- Oh, I just talked about it this morning. I just really? talked about it on FRL. Um, which match was I talking about bad strategy in? Uh, was it I was Iowa Penn? I don't think it was Iowa Penn. I don't remember which match it was. Um, yeah, we're talking about bad strategy. I hate bad strategy. Hate it, man. Well, Ben, it's always fun to have you on, and uh, I'm really glad you wrote this book. I enjoyed Thanks. reading it, and uh, I I hope to one day sit down with my kids and like share some of this knowledge. You need to write a book on parenting at some point. I think that well, would I'm, be trying, really- I'm trying to write one on sports psychology. So, um, specifically, so. Do you still have all those uh, uh surveys you sent out. 
We have those. I was just thinking about the other day. They're in my basement. Yes. Wow. I know. I was, I was the kind of thing like, hey, I should probably publish them at some way, shape, form. I did. I did not. But that'd be weird because I would think I would have to go get permission because I didn't tell those people I was going to publish them as is. I told them they would be used for like quotes in the book and that type of stuff. How the hell did you track down all those addresses? Uh, I don't even just manual because you yeah. should do it now. With, uh, no, you sh- you do whatever you want, but I think it'd be interesting to redo the survey with this group oh. the past 10 years and see if there's been any big changes. That would be interesting. Uh, how did I, I have no idea how I tracked on all those addresses. Yeah, but it was, it was mail. It wasn't, don't think it was email at that point in time. Cause it was 2006. Eh, maybe it was, I thought I, I know because we have the physical written copies. Right. So well, at the very least it was mailed back to us. So yeah. Fascinating. Man, really fascinating. Ben, thanks for coming on, man. Have a great day and wish you all the best. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wrestling Changed My Life with Ben Askren. For all past episodes, please go to WrestlingChangeMyLife.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. And please don't forget to show some love to our sponsors, Beat the Street Chicago. Go to BTSChicago.org to donate. Let's get those checkbooks out. Let's support the folks who need it most. And that's the kids in Chicago's Beat the Streets program btschicago.org slash donate. Let's also show some love to Quant Wrestling. All you have to do is go and download the app, Q-U-A-N-T Wrestling, Quant Wrestling. Check it out now and tell them we sent you. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you later this week with a new episode with Darian Caldwell. Peace!